Good morning. My name is Anne, and I've belonged to this wonderful faith community for over 20 years, along with my husband and our daughter. I was approached by Dan, just Dan as we call him, about teaching today, and that was just a few nights ago, but rather timely, as our family just paid our income taxes last Monday. <laughs> I think God has a real sense of humor here. So suffice it to say, we do not like tax collectors. Even if today's tax collector is simply an online entity, I dare you to find a real person to talk to the IRS, even if you want to. So I approached today's text and the eighth in our series on discipleship um, feeling really connected. I know myself to be self-righteous, so I can wear that Pharisee hat quite well. Today's topic is simply, but not at all simple. Disciples accept that they are sinners. As close listeners to these teachings have probably ascertained is our practice, our teachings delve first into the Bible, and we look at what is termed the meta-narrative, or the big picture, or like I like to think of it, the core golden nuggets about the nature of our faith. And there we try to understand the historical context in which Jesus told this parable. And then we go to relate it to our own context and ways it might connect for those of you listening today. Finally, we try to challenge you to think for yourself about what God might be saying expressly to you. What is he saying to you today? And remember the second question, what are you going to do about it? So without further ado, let's open in prayer. And for that, I'm going to restate part of Psalm 65. Praise awaits you, our God, in Zion. To you, our vows will be fulfilled. For you answer our prayer. To you, all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those who choose and bring near to live in your courts. Amen. Initially, I decided my working title for this message would be Saint versus Sinner, as we looked at the parable in Luke's chapter 18, as two seemingly different men go to the temple to pray. However, to cut to the chase, in case some of you want to tune out about now, you know that the correct title would actually be Sinner versus Sinner. As many of you remember learning from Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hard stop with that, right? All. And as our beloved Dan has said to me almost weekly in various prayer meetings, um, that I have to answer this question because he points to me every time. Um, do we know what the difference is between Christians and others? Anybody? Christians know that they are sinners. Okay, that's the answer. You know how you thought the answer is always Jesus, but for us, it's Christians know that they are sinners. I would ask you to consider, if you're ready today, to go even deeper. I wonder if there um, might be a key element necessary for growing our discipleship where we move from pure knowledge of 
that we're sinners to acceptance. Because I've come to believe that simply knowing something, it's not enough. Acceptance involves being brutally honest, and I um, would also argue brutally humble. So let's take it back to the ring, to this parable of Pharisee versus tax collector, round one. I did a little research, and I found out some information um, on our two protagonists. As you may recall, the Pharisees were influential religious leaders in Palestine around the time of Christ. They became prominent around 200 BC, and they were still around through the first century. They were very pious, held to the law, and were ritually pure. Take a moment. <laughs> Most New Testament accounts of the Pharisees represent the worst of this group. So I thought that was interesting research. You know, that when we read in the Bible, we might be giving them more of a bad name, but that doesn't discount today's story. Because generally, they were good people. They were God-fearing, and they sought to honor the Lord. But as with so many things, purity is sacrificed to power. The Pharisees became powerful in Israel, and they were challenged by Jesus' claims and his miracles. And I quote Josias, a Jewish historian of the first century. He calls the Pharisees a choice of life and a philosophy. And according to Josias, the Pharisees were the group most influential with the people. They were noted for their accurate and therefore authoritative, authoritative interpretations of Jewish, Jewish law. They had their own traditions and way of life to which they were very faithful. They had a simple standard of living and cultivated harmonious relations with others. But my source also said, Harper's Bible Dictionary, that some Pharisees incited opposition to the government though others worked with chief priests to keep order. In the first century, Josiah tells us that they numbered 6,000. All right, to the other corner, to the other side of the ring, tax collectors. Tax collectors were very despised. And they actually said very despised, okay, because they collected taxes for Rome. But Jesus saw this as an opportunity to teach that everyone was accepted by Jesus if they believed. During the time of Jesus, Israel was divided into various territories, and they were governed by descendants of Herod the Great. But Judea was an imperial territory governed by a Roman procurator, and the taxes were very high there. So wealthy Jews would bid for the position of tax collector, and then get even more rich by adding substantial fees above whatever was owed. And then there were the publicans, Republicans were like Matthew, who collected taxes for customs or tolls on imports, exports, and then the merchants who came to buy or sell in Israel. We have publicans and tax collectors. The religious leaders especially despised the tax collectors, and they were considered unclean because of their contact with Romans. Their testimonies were rejected in court, and they were not redeemable under the law of Moses. So... When Jesus made friends with tax collectors, his ministry was immediately under suspect. Going back to our parable, the account in Luke 18 opens with Jesus knowing quite well to whom he was speaking. In verse 9, 
he states that he told the parable to, quote, some who trusted in themselves, and they had trusted in them themselves that they were righteous, their first mistake, and that they regarded others with contempt, their second one. Because our faith requires a topsy-turvy view of the way the world works. These are kingdom values that Jesus taught, and they're opposite of empire values. You see, the Pharisee wholeheartedly believes his thankful, and I imagine rather loud, prayer in the temple, professing that he's better than everybody else, based on a long accounting of his pious deeds, his practices, his fasting, his tithing, blah, blah. His contempt and judgment of others is massive. Clearly, here, there is a misunderstanding between righteousness and what I would deem self-righteousness. But meanwhile, on the other side, standing far off and not even able to look up to heaven is the tax collector. Luke's gospel in, in verses 13 and 14 state his honest accounting of his lot. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I imagine he says this very low. It's a low and a meek voice. And then Jesus lets us all know that the victor, the one who is justified, is that dreaded tax collector. So jumping to how I connect, I believe I am a perfect sinner. <laughs> I'm a perfect sinner to give this teaching today as I really struggle personally with, with this aspect of discipleship. Both the acceptance part of my sin and sinful nature and with humility. I think that some of you know that when our daughter was close to three and I went back to work full time, she used to do this really funny imitation of me. She'd pick up my purse and put it on her shoulder, and then she'd pick up my fancy reading glasses, and she would literally strut around the room, very um, parasitical, I would say, and she would use this weird voice, and she'd say, I'm Ann Eustace. <laughs> Some folk found it funny. My husband thought it was because she was proud of me, but I think she saw through my pretenses. I think she was helping me see my need for humility. I am not all that. I never have been, never will be, and I never need to be. For me, part of my self-righteousness was formed over a good number of years, surviving what I would call a complicated childhood. I think in many ways I prided myself for being so resilient, as if any of that resilience came from me. You see, both my parents were alcoholic and abusive, and I worked really hard over a decade of therapy to get myself out from being what I would call stuck in the mud. With God's grace, with the help of spiritual parents, counselors, and friends, I believe I've made great strides with acceptance of my past and of my own sinfulness. I notice that now I can get easily frustrated with others when I see that they are still stuck, and I fight not to judge them. I turn this frustration to my knees, and I know that in God's time, these people who feel stuck will move from knowledge of their sinfulness to acceptance, and then from acceptance to what I would hope is growth as a disciple, but we just need to move. As a further point of connection, Dan told me this week that as soon as next month, 
our community partners in both AA and Al-Anon are going to come back to our campus. This chokes me up because it's really good news as St. John's seeks to be a point of light in this part of Howard County. Because I got a lot of help from the powerful work of these groups. And I think that the 12-step programs really center around today's topic of discipleship because we're all about today, remember, acceptance of our sinfulness. So I'm going to just read to you the first five steps of the 12-step program, and I think the connection to our parable will be hopefully pretty evident. Step one, we admitted to ourselves that we were powerless over, and then insert your sin here, we admit that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn over our will and our lives to the care of God. We made a searching inventory, searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and then admit to God, to ourselves, and to someone else the exact nature of our wrongs. So returning to Luke's gospel, I think that the tax collector was working the program, and Jesus knew it. Jesus said, quote, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So Dan made me promise that I wouldn't go any further today, because next week we're looking in deeply into repentance. But I have to quote the sticker on the Bible that Fern gave me. It says, spoiler alert, God wins. So come back next week and the week after because we have a lot more um, coming. But I'm going to um, not exactly be done, so don't get up yet, Wendy. Okay. All right. The, um, Psalm 65 will be my ending prayer, and then I'm going to pass the baton. So from the end of Psalm 65 this morning, we pray, the meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Praise God. Amen. So remember the last part is what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? When Dan said, would you preach today, I said, only if I can bring my spiritual daughter of the last six and a half years, because she said she would help me. I've been coaching her, and she said I could, she would be willing to give a, a mini response and testimony based on this text. So, Kat, if you want to wander up. Um, my friend Kat Cahill was married in this church and has three beautiful children, and we connected because God wanted us to be together. So, Kat? <laughs> yeah, you're staying right here. Okay. <laughs> so, hi. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Some of you know me. I'm Kat. I was. I was married right here. Um, Dan, I don't even know you, and I don't know how you got me up here. <laughs> so, uh, we were enjoying margaritas when you got, <laughs> when you got the text. It's all good. It was. It was. <laughs> and uh, and you, you got a text, and... <laughs> 
was great. We walked, we walked for a while after, it was fine. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and Anne got a text like, you know, oh no, like I'm gonna have to do the sermon. And I just started asking questions like, well, what is it on? Yeah, what is it on? He said that, uh, that disciples are humble. And I was like, and all the feels, okay. Yeah, so then we just started talking about the verses and I just knew that God was like, you need to tell Anne you're willing to do it. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not doing that, no. And so maybe the margarita helped, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so we have been connected for, for quite a while. Yeah, so when, um, when I was going through the scripture ahead of time and I've done you know, huddles and all the learning circles and all that stuff, that what stood out to me was that there wasn't a lot of context on how the taxpayer or how the tax collector got to his knees, like what happened? Was it just a horrible life and like I just can't do it anymore? Was it you saw Jesus and had a supernatural experience? Was it like what happened? And for me, I know what changed my relationship was a combination of things, which some of you have walked me through. I won't go into all those details today. Um, but I just, I thought that that was an interesting piece that was left out that makes it easier for us to kind of put ourselves in. You know, if he was to give a very specific example, like he lost a spouse. If you're, don't, you're not married, you've never experienced that, it's a little harder for you to put your feet in those shoes. But to just leave that open of like, this guy was living this life and he came here and was like, and I'm done. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna change everything. I just, I found that really powerful. Um, I personally have had that experience, so I had an entire year of my life where things around me, out of my control, got very, very difficult, and I lost a marriage, and you know, I had to share custody with my son, and walking a lot of that, but that was just, a, okay, these things are happening to me, and I have to walk that one step at a time. And then the next year, it was more hard things, but it had been my choice. <laughs> that I made decisions that made my life difficult, that made me have to make some really hard decisions on how am I gonna walk this and am I gonna continue to love Jesus and seek him every step of the way? So if any of you have young kids, there's a um, song in Frozen 2 called The Next Best Thing or The Next Right Thing that if you haven't watched it, go watch that from a Christian's perspective and you will cry your eyes out. <laughs> it is such a powerful message that like, Right, when Jesus says that I'm the lamp into your feet, like how far does a lamp reach? Have you ever thought about that? Like how far does that light go? He didn't have like a military grade flashlight <laughs> or you know, our like LED highway lights and like your reflective paint that you can see for miles. Like, no, it's three feet, four feet maybe. That that's it, it's just what is he asking you to do right now? And what, how are you gonna respond to that? You don't have to have the whole thing planned out. So. If you have not taken a step towards discipleship and you're kind of wondering, like, what does that look like? What does, how am I supposed to do that? I just invite you that, right, the, that next thing would just be looking at how you can learn more about Jesus. How did he live his life? Just read. You don't have to know where to start. You don't, like, I don't know if you guys still do the Moravian daily text is a really, really... Yeah, so it's just awesome. It's just a very simple program for you, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, a Psalm or a Proverb, and just read it and just take note of what sticks out to you. Do you get a picture in your head? Is there a phrase that you're like, oh, my eyes are kind of stuck on this. I just need to read this again. And just write that down and just pray about it. Like, all right, God, that stuck out to me. What do you want me to do with that today? And it may be he doesn't tell you anything. He just wants you to sit with that for a couple of days. That's okay, too. Um, if you are at the point where you have 
started that relationship, but now you want to take that kind of to the next level, that's when you start to get in discipleship with other people, right? God gave us community for a reason, because we can't do this <laughs> on our own, on our own at all. Um, I would not have made it through the first year, much less the second year, without my family, without my spiritual family, without um, Alan and Ann and, and Callie, without this church. So, um, yeah, I just invite you to look for someone that, if you feel you're ready, someone that you can teach how to emulate Christ or find someone who can help you refine how to emulate Christ. Um, so, Alan, would you do me, I'm totally putting you on the spot, Will you just go back and grab Morgan for me real quick? We're going to do a really quick kind of example of, of discipleship. So this is obviously if you have kids, you're teaching them or have ever had kids or spiritual kids, you're constantly teaching them how to do things, right? Like we, we learn how to walk by watching other people and trying and failing. We learn how to tie our shoes by seeing other people and like, oh, I need to figure that out. And you try it and you fail or somebody buys you Velcro and you figure it out. <laughs> um, when, when I decided to really start leaning into walking, right, that next right thing, that next step, I had two children, and one of them was very, very young, and I had decided, one of them, I'm not able to control how much Jesus he gets in the other house, and it is next to none that I was going to decide when he's here, I'm going to keep his boat steady, and I'm going to make sure that he knows how to look for and respond to God. So one thing that we started, hi, honey, come here. So this is my daughter, Morgan. So one thing that we decided to do, a very small step, right, just what is that one little step that you can take, is we started saying, actually, here at St. John's, we said the Lord's Prayer every night at, at bedtime, and then all of a sudden, all three of my kids, even my three-year-old who's back there, they all can say it by themselves. So I just invite you that if you have never heard this, that you guys done the square, right? Like the, the leadership square, like, right, I'm, you're just going to watch. We don't have the slides up. <laughs> so you can just watch and listen. If you know most of these, I ask that you would speak these words, as many of them as you know, or just kind of engage with us. If you already know this, and this is like, you know, you could say this with your eyes backwards, I ask that you let her lead because she is learning how to be a disciple. Does that sound good? Okay, so even if the version is a little different, let her lead for a blessing. All right, go ahead. Our, Our Father, Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and give us our sins. We forget those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial, and us from evil, for yours is the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Sunny. <laughs>